Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Kel Castro. I'm the student pastor here at Austin Oaks Church, and it is so good to be with you today, and I have the distinct honor and pleasure of being able to bring the word to you this morning. Uh, if you were unaware, today marks the beginning of our Advent season. If you don't know what Advent is, it is the season where we get to celebrate Christ's first coming as he was born uh, through Mary. Merry Christmas, everybody, right? And we also get to eagerly await his second coming, where he will return to us one day. Uh, And it's a sweet season where we get to talk about joy and peace and love and hope. And we get to sing Christmas songs, which is sweet because those have been playing in our household since October, right? And so now we get to do it in church, which is really good. And speaking of Christmas songs, I promise I will not be singing today, right? But uh, if you, I would love for y'all and like encourage you guys this Thursday, we have our songs of hope uh, and it's going to be amazing. That's our Christmas program. We're going to have Christmas songs. We're going to have skits and poems and vignettes. It's a really sweet time where we get to celebrate this season together. I'd love for you guys to come join us then. But as I was saying, this Advent season, it's where we get to put up our Christmas trees and our ornaments and our decoration and everything is holly and jolly. But as Becca was mentioning earlier, This season is also a season that is no stranger to tension because in this Advent and Christmas season, as we discuss sweet and wonderful concepts, we're also faced with difficult realities and hard truths. There's a tension that we often live in in a bunch of different areas because in a a season of celebration, there's also grief. When we have loved ones, friends, and family, there's also loneliness. There's joy and there's suffering. There's now and there's not yet. And as, as you know, it's a phrase Becca mentioned earlier, and it's one that you're going to hear a lot in this Advent season, and, and especially over the next few weeks as we enter into this next sermon series, because it's a statement that communicates a lot about the timeliness, the future hope, and the eternality of the God that we worship, as well as how we are called to live in regards to both the present and the future. This series is called For All Time. And we're going to be addressing how Jesus operates in the past, present, and future, and how that applies to how we both live now and how we hope and, and, and live for the future. As Jesus tells us in Revelation 1.8, he is the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, who was and is and is to come. And in this series, right, this word, the revelation, what this really means is a revealing, an unveiling. We are getting a peek behind the curtain that God is displaying truths and wonders to us that allow us to be illuminated in how we think about the future and how we think about the present. Because in this series, we're going to be looking at how God's plan for joy, peace, love, and hope are not just for the future, but they're also for right now, for all time. We're just coming off the heels of a series, if you've been with us the past month, where we've been talking about enjoying God. And so it seems fitting that today we also get to talk about joy and admittedly in a little bit of a different flavor or twist. Uh, But with that, if you have one, please go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 16, verse 20 to 24. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have one on your phone, that's okay. We'll have the words on the screen behind me. Uh, But as you're turning there, uh, in this passage and in the surrounding chapters, Jesus is talking to his disciples during the Last Supper, right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane 
uh, to pray and eventually be arrested. And, you know, he's trying to get, you know, these last messages of truth and love communicated. Uh, And in this passage in John 16, he's in the midst of a discourse about his death resurrection and ascension, and because he's addressing some kind of confusing and difficult topics and subject matter with his disciples, he's trying to give them a little bit of encouragement. So in John 16, verses 20 to 24, we read, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for allowing us to just come before you today to celebrate you through the sharing of your word, to worship you through praise and bringing all of our heart's affections to you. God, I pray that you would speak through me, that my words would not be my own, but they would be yours. God, that we could glorify you and that we could know and understand you and love you and want to follow you and be around you more and more today. God, you're good. We praise things in your name. Amen. I think it's really interesting when we consider the most joyful moments of our lives that they're often you know, kind of in balance with seasons of suffering, right? Maybe it's a hard event that happened. Maybe it's a, uh, a hard season of life. Maybe it's just the arduous process of achieving something that you've been working toward. Uh, but joy often feels like it mainly occurs in the midst of some sort of suffering. Or to phrase it another way, joy exists in tension. So like when I was younger, uh, my family and I went to Six Flags Fiesta, Texas, uh, and uh, down in San Antonio. And I had never ridden a real roller coaster before. Like what I say that, when I say that, what I mean is I'd gone on the ones that kind of go in loops, just like this, but they don't actually, you know, do any big drops or go too fast or go upside down because I was not tall enough to ride. And so my family's like, hey, we're going to ride a real roller coaster together. And I'm freaking out because I had a fear of heights. I say had because my family said, Kel, you don't have a fear of heights. We're going to make sure that doesn't happen. And they broke that out of me. And so uh, we're walking up to the Superman coaster. And if you're not aware, the Superman coaster is famous for having one of the biggest drops in the world and having one of the biggest continuous upside down loop-de-loops in the world. And I do not want to do this. I'm not excited about it. The rest of my family's like, roller coaster, Superman, it's gonna be great, right? And so we walk up, go up to the this tall to ride sign, and thank God, I'm about an inch too short. And I said, oh, bummer, darn it, shoot. I really wanted to do this, guys, but I, I'll watch the bags and the novelty cups. I'll make sure, y'all have fun, uh, right? Have a good time. And my mom looks at this little high schooler who's running the, uh, the little section. She's like, we'll see about this. And we go like 30 feet away to the bathroom. She runs inside, grabs as much toilet paper as she can and stuffs it in the soles of my shoes, boosts me up a couple inches. And I now know where this is heading and I am not excited. I'm dreading this. So she walks me over to the little this tall to ride sign and this same apathetic teenager who just saw me like two minutes previous be too short is like, man, wouldn't you believe it? Look at that, you're tall enough to ride, go on up. 
right? And I am losing it. I begin to freak out. I'm throwing a huge tantrum. I'm screaming, I'm crying all the way up until the moment where they put me in the seat. I say seat, seat is being a little bit generous because if you've ever been on this ride, it's not a chair that you sit on where there's a floor. Your feet are just kind of dangling, which is worse than just being in a seat. And so, right, and they, they strap you in. And if you know, right, the this tall to ride is actually a safety thing because if you're too small, you'll just fly out, right? And so for me, I'm like, oh, this is my nightmare. This is the worst thing that could happen. So they strap me in, like starts to ride. And that's gotta be the worst part of a roller coaster because it's all fear and anticipation and nothing fun, right? And so you're just, I'm just like, please get me off the ride. My mom was like, it's too late for that, Kel. Like we're already on here, tough. And so we, we, we make our way up. And we, we start going down and we drop and we do the big loop-de-loop and it's crazy. And after about a minute or two, we come to a slowing stop at the end of the ride. My tears have dried to the sides of my face because of wind pressure. And I, and I look at my mom and I say, that was incredible, let's do it again. That was amazing. And I loved roller coasters and I still do, but unfortunately roller coasters don't love me as much because now I go and my age shows and I go on a roller coaster, I'm like, oh, oh, I need this. I need to take a break for like 30 minutes. Let's do, let's do, let's do a Ferris wheel, uh, right? Joy exists in tension, right? In the most joyful moments of my life, and I think I can speak for a lot of us, right? The most joyful moments of our lives, they, co- they coexist alongside tension, stress, pressure, pain, suffering, When Courtney and I were getting married, most joyful moment of my life, I get to see the woman that I love walking down the aisle toward me. And I'm so excited because she's walking down, uh, you know, a string quartet's playing I Will Always Love You in the background. We're singing to each other. Our friends and family are around us. BJ's officiating the ceremony. It's super fun. We get to celebrate our union and worship. We get to eat good food and dance and party. And it was a great time. But if anyone who's ever been married can tell you, wedding season is a really stressful season. So Courtney and I had both entered into new jobs, both of us. And so we're trying to figure out How do we blend new lives, new ways of living? We're combining bank accounts. We're getting a new car. How are we going to do this logistically, right? We're planning an event for 200 people who may or may not come because they feel like it. They're just on a whim, right? Who knows, right? Uh, And then we're trying to do premarital counseling because we want to do things wisely and we want to do things well. And so we want to uproot all the potential pitfalls in our marriage. And so we're doing all this let alone, and most notably, we are taking two sinful, unique lives and combining them into one that is meant to reflect the perfect love of God. It's a lot of pressure, right? But there's so much sweetness and joy. Joy exists in tension. The entire process of becoming a father was wonderful and crazy and beautiful and stressful and wild, right? Because So Courtney first tells me that she's pregnant on the last day of a VBS at our church. And so I'm decked out in my 90s hip hop gear because that was the theme. And she tells me she's pregnant and I go, word. Uh, And it was really good. Uh, And uh, I'm super excited because I was so, I was so pumped to be a dad. This was an amazing gift to me. I was pumped and it was sweet and we got to celebrate together. Uh, And then after a few weeks, as things start kind of normalizing, we're like, okay, how are we gonna do this? How do we logistically like have a baby and like 
take care of another life, right? And so a few months after, we move into our house. We're like, all right, cool. Let's set up the nursery. We paint the walls. We set up the crib. We get car seats and strollers and diapers and clothes and diapers and, and diapers, right? And so much diapers. Uh, and we're preparing for the time when we're going to have a baby. And when it comes time for Judah to be born, uh, we end up having a pretty wild birthing experience. And so because of some complications, uh, we actually end up having to get an uh, emergency C-section. And so we don't actually get to hold Judah for the first like six hours after he was been born. And we spent about a week in the NICU uh, chilling in the hospital. And when we finally brought him back home, as opposed to like sleeping, uh, he decided, hey, I think it would be a much better decision if I didn't slept didn't sleep for like 24 hours. And instead, I just screamed and cried. It would be great. And Courtney and I are looking at each other like, is this our life now? Like, is this, is this where we live? Right? But if you see him now and you know him now, if you've met him, dude is the most joyful, happy, wonderful, excited, smiley baby that we've ever seen. And he's wonderful. And like after a couple of months, we started figuring out patterns and it was really sweet. And now it's such a joy to be around him. He brings us so much delight. We love being able to spend time with him. And he's incredible, even if I get sick at an, ex- at an exponentially greater rate than I ever did before kids. Because Judah and all of his baby friends are little germ factories who are like, hey, dad, right in my mouth, right? Uh, so if I throw up on stage, don't worry about it. It's fine, right? Joy exists in tension. About a month ago, an event occurred that I think really tangibly expresses this reality because after 62 seasons of mediocrity and sadness, after a beat down in 2010 and a heartbreak in 2011, the Texas Rangers finally won the World Series. And I think I can speak for you know, Texas Rangers fans across the board that especially after 2011, I think we assumed that the lot in life for the Texas Rangers and the fans thereof It was just to suffer. That was the lot in life. But after some grit, determination, and a massive spending spree over a couple years, the Texas Rangers were able to bring a World Series championship to a fan base that desperately craved it. Joy exists in tension. When we return to our passage, we come across something really interesting as it relates to time and prophecy. In one passage, Jesus is making reference to his birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and his eventual second coming. And after telling his disciples that he's going to be going away soon, but then he's going to be returning, they're really confused because he's like, is he going on a trip? Where's he going? Is he heading over to Greece? What's the deal? Right? Uh, And so he's like, okay, let me, you know, clear the air a little bit. And he tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Okay, so not a ton of help on the confusion front necessarily. He's still using kind of like metaphorical language. But on the surface level, Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection. He's going to leave the world. His enemies, the enemy, are going to rejoice. And his followers, his disciples, are going to be sad, his death. 
But then he's going to return. And his disciples, his followers, their sorrow is going to turn into joy, his resurrection. He likens this to a woman who suffers in the process of delivering a baby, but then rejoices when the child is brought into the world and forgets her anguish. And we could leave the analogy there, but I think it seems almost impossible that Jesus would reference a child being brought into a suffering world and bringing joy with it without it at least being like a sly wink and nod at his own story because his birth story would have been kind of famous, pretty mythologized, pretty gossip heavy because if you weren't aware, virgins don't give birth very often, right? And so this is a thing that's gonna stir some controversy and as well, the prophecies regarding the Messiah are full of, of prophecies about his birth. And so Jesus, speaking about joy being brought into the world through a child being born, there's no way it's not at least like, a, like at minimum a sly reference to his own story. Merry Christmas, everybody, right? But then after telling them that they will rejoice when they see him again, that no one can take their joy away and that their joy will actually be full because of their new ability to approach the father, to ask him anything, because we have this thing, because Jesus in this passage is talking about sending the Holy Spirit, that we now have Jesus as an intercessor for us and that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, bringing our hearts to the Lord, empowering us, giving us the presence of God. Jesus tells us, I came from the father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And Jesus kind of summarizes his whole earthly mission here by saying that he was in heaven eternally with God, that he came into the world through his birth, and that he is about to die and raise from the grave, and then he's going to return to the Father, he's going to ascend, and then one day he's going to come back for us. And the wonderful thing is that in every aspect of Jesus' journey, he's bringing joy in the midst of suffering. There's always this balance, this kind of like mixture of joy and suffering in all parts of this. Joy exists in tension. His birth comes during the long season of Israel being continually conquered by newer and more powerful nations and a silence of God from, you know, hundreds of years. And then finally, he sends his own son to be in the world, right? And then his death happens when so many people were counting on him. They were like, this is the guy, we're following him. And then he is convicted and killed as a criminal. But that very death is the thing that frees us from our sins. There's joy and tension, right? His resurrection occurs when everyone was hiding in grief and sorrow and shame who had been following him, but then they get to celebrate with him in victory as he is now the risen king. And then he sends us the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us so that we can have life with him. And then he is going to, or he's going to ascend, and then he's going to send us the Holy Spirit. And people are confused because they're like, wait, why are you leaving us? Why are you, you know, we thought you were going to bring us into the things that we were hoping for. And he's like, I get that. I know you're sad to lose me, but it's actually better because now the Holy Spirit's coming and it's going to be really good for you. And then eventually, and this is the part that we live in, that this is difficult, that I think is real for us, is because eventually 
Jesus is going to return one day to come back to us to bring joy to a world that is in the midst of suffering here and now. In Romans 8.22, Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. A lot of childbirth in this sermon. Shout out moms, right? Uh, This is the wall that I find myself running into as I consider the concept of joy both joy here and now and joy for the future. And, you know, as a student pastor, I feel like I'm expected to be somewhat of like an expert on joy. It's hard sometimes, right? But when I look at scripture, I know and I believe that one day Jesus is going to come back for us, that he's going to bring us joy unending and freedom from pain and suffering and sorrow and anger and all these things. But because he's God, that when we are with him, when he delivers us from this world, that when he brings us into the new heaven and new earth, there is going to be sweetness and joy forever. And one day things are going to be incredible, but I don't live in one day. I live here. Now, not yet. Tension. This is where I live. This is where we live. So I'm somewhat of a language nerd, and as I was studying for this sermon, one word really stuck out to me. So in John 16, 21, Jesus says that a woman giving birth experiences but no longer remembers her anguish once the child has been born. And that word anguish is the Greek word phlipsis. It's a really weird word. We don't really put letters in that order in English because it feels weird, right, to go phlipsis, right? But this word Flipsis, do you know where else we see it in the New Testament? The word tribulation. Now, before you begin looking for empty seats next to you with like, you know, uninhabited coats and shoes, (laughs) flipsis is actually what we, what this word means. It's like, it gives the idea of incredible pressure, but as if two objects were being compressed and that there's just this tension in the middle. The, the literal usage of this word was a form of torture where like someone would be laid down and progressively heavier weights would be put on top of them until they were compressed and crushed to death. Really lighthearted, joy-filled sermon, right? Flipsis gives this idea that there are two opposing forces that are colliding and that there is a great sense of tension and pressure in the middle. In the tribulation spoken of in scripture, it's the idea that the kingdom of God is colliding with the kingdom of the world and that we exist in the midst of that pressure other times for us to find all the reasons to be joyful, to look around the world And if we're honest with ourselves, there are often many times when it is really difficult to be joyful. End of scripture constantly, and that's a thing promised in scripture constantly. Be joyful, rejoice in the midst of suffering. How? How are we supposed to do? Because there are so many reasons for us not to be. When we don't have enough money to pay bills to afford basic necessities, How are we supposed to do the things necessary to survive? That things happen in our lives where we are, our lives get upended 
by an unexpected illness or an injury. How are we supposed to figure out what we're doing? Things were fine before, but now we're you know, having to rearrange our schedule and our finances to, to work. And, and how is this supposed to play out? That we, we, we are more aware now than ever because of technication and, and all these things of all of the atrocities that occur around us in our world, in our city, everywhere. We, we can't ignore certain things. We know of these terrible and seemingly unjust things that occur that we know of people who are being assaulted and raped and murdered and kidnapped. We know of children children who are dying and experiencing horrible things. We know of people who don't, know how, don't have enough money to live and they're in situations that are unbearable. We can't even coexist peacefully in the, you know, amongst our neighbors and the people of the same city that we live in, let alone our nation or our world, because the things that divide us are way more prevalent than the things that unify us. And it's way easier to go, we are other from this people group or this you know, way of believing or this way of thinking. It is so hard to find joy when we're just in the midst of all of this heartache and garbage and hurt Christmas is supposed to be this wonderful season where we celebrate, but it's also one of the seasons where grief and depression are at their most prevalent because for one of many reasons, it is one of the seasons where we are most aware of those who are not with us. Maybe because they live too far away to celebrate properly, Maybe because there have been things in our lives that have happened where, you know, we don't get to celebrate with the people of. Maybe there was a divorce. Maybe there was a movement. Maybe there was something that happened where there's now tension and hurt. Maybe because you've had a loved one pass away and you're now having to reconcile with what does life look like now. And as a side note, if that is you, I want to, from my heart, plead and encourage you to go to, uh, to, to, in January, we have a program called Grief Share that's coming up, uh, and I would highly encourage you to check that out, whether it's here or elsewhere, please check that out. It's an opportunity for you to gather alongside people who are in a similar situation to you or who have been through similar situations, and you can find comfort and counsel and encouragement in the gospel. But all that to say, we don't have to look far to find reasons not to be joyful. We know the pressure, the tension, the flipsis, because we live there. For some of us, it's probably way easier to recognize the tension than it is to see any reason to be joyful. And if that's true, how can we read Jesus declaring that our joy may be full and that no one can take away our joy right now? Like again, one day, when Jesus returns, when he brings joy with him, yeah, that makes sense. But in the midst of everything happening right now, how? When we look at this passage to try to discern where joy actually comes from, the source becomes more obvious and thus the ability to be joyful right now. Our sorrow turns to joy not when we get some sort of material possession, not when we achieve something or when something happens to us, and notably, not when tension or tribulation doesn't exist. But our sorrow turns to joy when we are in the presence of God. 
when Jesus, the child, is born, he brings joy into the world. That's why we're saying joy to the world, right? That's the whole point, right? When Jesus is walking the earth and teaching and performing miracles, he is bringing joy in his presence. When Jesus dies and raises from the grave, he is bringing joy because now we have the opportunity to be reconciled to his presence. When he sends us his Holy Spirit, there is joy in the salvation and the power that occurs. And when he returns one day, there will be joy when he returns for us and brings us into his perfection. In Psalm 16, King David is writing while in the midst of some sort of distress. And we know, uh, we know that this is true because he writes things like, Preserve me, O God. Don't, uh, don't corrupt me. Don't let me be shaken. Don't abandon me to the grave. But in the midst of whatever turmoil he's experiencing, David writes, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Sometimes the tension is technology. Uh, and that's, that's how it goes. It says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You make no, and and we, we read this and we go, how? And in verse 11, it says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Yes, joy exists in tension, but more importantly, joy only exists in God's presence. The beauty of this sentiment is that it supersedes any scenario or situation, any hurt or suffering, any tension or pressure, any flipsis that we might find ourselves in or that we might see in the world around us. No matter what may be happening in any moment, we always have access to the presence of God and thus we have access not just to fleeting happiness, the, the happiness that comes from, oh man, this thing happened or, or that thing or, or I got this or whatever, but then it goes away. We don't have access just to fleeting happiness, but we have access to the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We know this because if joy only exists in God's presence, God has continually done everything necessary to provide us the fullness of joy through giving us his presence. He creates us, but then he gives us relationship with himself. And when that relationship is broken, he's the one who does what is necessary to restore it. He sends his own son to be born of a virgin. So that's the reason we celebrate Christmas, right? That he walks amongst us, that he lives and dies and raises from the grave so that our lives can be restored and redeemed, that our relationships with God can be reconciled. We can have life with him. And then he sends us his Holy Spirit so that we can have the very presence of God dwelling inside of us, teaching us, reminding us, convicting us, empowering us. And then he gives, uh, he promises us that he is going to return one day in the future to provide joy unending. Though we live right now in the flipsis, in the midst of tension and pressure and suffering, 
we are guaranteed joy. Not just the joy for hope uh, for one day in the future, which is incredible, but we have joy here and now because God has given us access to himself. And the reasons that joy seems fleeting or fake right now is because we tend to put our joy in things that don't hold up. Whenever I'm gonna put my joy in how much money or material possessions I have, I'm gonna feel the pressure when I feel like I don't have enough, which is always. When I put my joy in things like sexuality or anything like that, I'm gonna feel empty when it doesn't uphold its end of the bargain when it doesn't fulfill every promise, when it doesn't actually do what I need or solve the problems that I have in my life. When I put my joy in health and well-being, whether it's my own or of those I love, I'm gonna suffer when I or, or people around me or the people that I know experience some sort of hurt or pain or whatever, or, or God forbid death, that I can't control and that I don't know how to deal with. When I put my joy in anything, I am never going to experience the joy that I'm craving. I may get fleeting happiness that goes away once it's done, but I will never experience the joy that I'm craving because nothing lasts forever, nothing upholds its value and nothing fulfills every promise. But when I put my joy in God, the unchanging, never-ending, all-powerful, all-loving God in reveling and dwelling in his presence, then regardless of what may happen to me or to those I love, no matter how little money or anything else I have, regardless of what I see happening in the world around me, no matter pain or devastation or death that may occur, I know that I can always find the fullness of joy in the presence of God. Joy only exists in God's presence. But as we have been mentioning all sermon, and because this is a series called For All Time, not only do we have that, but we also have joy. We also know that we will have joy without suffering without tension, one day soon. In Romans 8, verse 18, right before the verse we read earlier, we read, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We can have joy right now, not just because we have access to the presence of God, which would be more than enough, but we can have the fullness of joy because we know how this ends. We know the end of the story and we know that it is glorious. We know that Jesus is going to come back for us one day in the midst of all of this hurt and suffering and everything that we're experiencing. And he is going to bring us everything that is glorious and joy. He's going to give us himself in beauty. And it's going to be incredible and wonderful. And we can be joyful now in spite of the sufferings that are happening because the, the amount, the scale of joy and glory that Jesus is going to bring with him when he conquers this world, when he brings us into life and freedom is exponentially greater it is not even comparable. It's beyond our hope or imagination or comprehension 
that nothing and no suffering that can exist here can even be on the same scale as the joy and glory that will exist with him one day. And so though we live in the tension of the now and the not yet, we know that God is for our joy for all time. We know that he is with us here and now in the midst of the flipsis of the suffering. That's why we can actually read verses like rejoice in your sufferings, which is a foolish verse if you don't have the Lord. Because we can't do that. But he says you can because I'm with you. And because I'm with you, you can actually be joyful in the midst of your sufferings. So we can have joy in the midst of our ellipsis because God is with us. And we can also have joy in the fact that he's returning for us one day to deliver us from all pain into perfection. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we can find the fullness of joy in his presence here and now. And we can find the fullness of joy in the future that is to come. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for just being a God who is for us. Who is for our joy. Not because you have to be, but because you love us. Because you are a God who, you're a father who gives good gifts lavishes us with incredible things like your son who you sent to us to die for us, to raise for us. God, I pray that whatever is happening in our hearts, in our lives, in the worlds around us, Lord, whatever suffering we are witness to, that we know all too well every death, every empty bank account, every hurt, every broken family, everything, Lord, that you know and that we don't, despite all those things, I pray that we could dwell securely in your love, in your presence. God, that in spite of all those things, that you would bring us joy, bring us yourself. Let us experience the fullness of joy that only exists in your presence and the fullness of joy at the hope and the knowledge and the security that comes from knowing that you are coming back for us. Lord Jesus, we desire you, we want you, and we ask for you to come back. We want you here, we want you with us. Bring us into your joy, bring us into your presence. God, you're good. We love you. We pray this in your holy and amazing name. Amen.